morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming. I want to thank the Agudah for arranging this extremely impressive conference. And we finally have the opportunity to emulate what's being done in other parts of the country. So we rate two. <coughs> and I'm especially honored to have been asked to give a shear and try to help raise awareness of important topics in Chayshimish, but in financial halacha. I would say just that during this time of year, the nine days, it's especially appropriate to speak about financial issues and honesty in business. The smack, say for Mrs. Cutton, one of the Rishayim, I believe, rings. I think he brings it from a medrash that says that one of the things that prevents Mashiach from coming is that Mashiach would want to come, but Mashiach can't come and redeem Klal Yisrael. All the nations of the world will say, you're redeeming Klal Yisrael. They're dishonest. Why would you redeem them? And a big factor in bringing Mashiach quicker and contributing to the Geula is indeed working on our own honesty and our own adherence, strict adherence to halacha in financial matters just as everything else. As an introduction to this discussion about the ins and outs of employee or employer obligations, I found an interesting thing when I started learning this Indian and throughout the time I spent on this Indian was that these particular questions, the disagreements that come up in a workplace, disagreements between uh, an employer and an employee about terms, about hiring, about firing, about quitting, uh, about the nature of your, the work or things that come up between people that you hire to do work for you in your house and so on and so forth, they don't tend to make it to Basin. They don't take, they don't find their way into a Basin. And the reason for that is three reasons. And sometimes, and Rav gets asked about it and sometimes not, but very few case studies are available. Uh, one reason is, is because imagine, you know, you are an employee, you're a, whether you're a secretary or whatever kind of job you have, you're an accountant, you're, you're, you're employed by someone and you have an issue um, and you have a disagreement with your employer. So it wouldn't be the wisest course of action if you want to keep your job to take your employer to Basin, <laughs> not known to uh, help the relationship between employee and employer. So yes, you may be right, and yes, you may not forgive the employer for what you think he owes you, uh, but you won't take it to base, it's simply not worth it. And likewise, if you have a client, so you think the client owes you money, and you might have asked him for the money, or you have a disagreement with him, but it's not worth um, risking losing the client totally over whatever the question was. Not that that makes it right, and not that that makes it honest, but that's why you won't end up in Basin. Another reason is because often if you make too much of a deal with people, you end up risking your reputation, especially today with the ability to post um, re uh, reviews about doctors, lawyers, anybody, basically on uh, Yelp or any other website. So if you get into an altercation, there's a much bigger question you have to ask yourself. Not only is it worth it for the money, but is it worth it for what the damage I could potentially um, endure as a result? And also, often, it's not about enough money. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this all out is because I think it's 
part of what's important to realize for ourselves that we may be on the one end of this kind of discussion and we have to realize that while the other person may not be demanding us, he may not uh, re require, take us to court, he may not be asking us to go to a basin or even to a rough, that doesn't indicate that he has forgiven us or it doesn't indicate that it's okay. It's just that, like I said, a lot of times it just doesn't pay. These halachas are extraordinarily relevant, and they're relevant for, our, for everybody. And when I say for everybody, I mean for a girl when she turns 12 years old, and for a boy when he turns 13 years old, and up. Every single person is relevant for, because all of us have been an employer and an employee, everybody, without fail. We've been both employed, and we're also employers. For example, um, if you, Get, have a doctor's appointment, you're employing the doctor. Important to realize that. Now, you're his patient, so it feels like it's the other way around, but essentially you are paying him for a service he's rendering for you. So you are employing the doctor, you're his employer, and he is your employee. And if you cancel a doctor's appointment, it's what would be called in halacha as a chazara. You hired him, you uh, made a time, you made an appointment, he was meant to service you at that point, and then you canceled the appointment, you backed out from your employment agreement with him. And if he sustains a loss as a result of you backing out, well, that's something we're going to talk about today. That's something you very likely are obligated to pay for, and it's something very likely he won't make you pay for. Again, the same kind of thing. <clears throat> uh, if you... Now, being on the, um, the, the side of the employee is also something which happens if no matter whatever kind of service you provide, you are an employee. If you babysit any of those, you're obviously an employee. But what we're going to talk about today as well is that when you volunteer, you're also an employee. If you participate in a carpool, you're an employee. You're working for each other. So everybody has some application of being an employee or an employer, and I think as we go through the different questions that we're going to talk about today, uh, you, it will, as is often the case, it's going to start raising in your mind many, many more questions that I'm not talking about, because once we become aware of how many things are issues, we start seeing how relevant it is for all of us. I just want to tell you a couple of cases which happened, I got asked about recently. Um, I, one, of my, uh, one of my nieces, she had a job, a steady job, uh, in, a, uh, in an office, and they asked her if she's going to work for the next year, and she said, yes, I'm committing, you know, I will continue working next year as well. And then she was offered a much, much better job. It was a better paying job. The, t the hours were better. The terms were better. And she wanted to know if she could back out. She didn't sign any contract. She didn't do anything. All she said was that she'll, she said she'll do it. That was one child I was asked, which we'll talk about. Um, one of the questions which actually inspired me to start really getting into these halachas and even tried to write a, uh, a book about it was uh, someone in, in, my, in my congregation, my kahila, that was a photographer. And someone ordered a photo shoot. <clears throat> so uh, they, they had you know, a price that paid up, but paid up in advance for both the, the, the sitting and for the pictures. So, went through with it, took all the pictures, um, and then when the pictures were delivered, the person says, I don't like these pictures. I'm not going to pay you for it. He had already paid half the money in advance, and he was demanding the money back. And the person said, I mean, you don't have that option. <laughs> you, know, you hired me. You know what I do. You've seen my, my, you've seen my work. 
uh, you, if you hire me and, and I do the work and I spent the hours and the, the editing and everything, you can't tell me you don't like it. It's industry standards, there's nothing wrong with them. So that was also a question. Is that person forced to pay for something he doesn't want? Um, another question also very right in the beginning when I was learning these halachas was a uh, playgroup mora who had forgotten to clarify in the beginning of the year that for this, even though in the past years, drop off on, pick up, I'm sorry, on Friday was at two, from here on forward, she wanted pick up on Friday to be at one. So she wanted to know, is she allowed to do that? Now, realize this is also an important aspect of Skira's pilum of these halachas is that, you know, both she essentially has everybody over the barrel, right? Because you can, she can say, okay, if you don't like it, you can leave, but where's people feel like you're not going to go anywhere, right? Where you're not finding yourself another playgroup in the middle of the year. So she had, so to speak, the upper hand, and she wanted to know, is she permitted to change terms? And where it was expected to be two, she could, can you change it to one? Again, uh, and a very important question. Um, and then the very common question is uh, on just with babysitting happens all the time. It happens on both ends of the spectrum. Both the babysitter decides that she doesn't want to do it and she lets the people know last minute, which obviously makes them scramble or maybe that makes them give up what they were wanting to do because they don't have a babysitter. And likewise, people cancel babysitters last minute. And when they cancel a babysitter last minute, very often the babysitter had opportunities to do another job, which she turned down because she accepted this job. And people just turn it down and they, and they, they cancel the babysitter and they don't offer any remuneration, they don't, they don't offer to pay. And again, that's very, very questionably, questionable halakhically if that's okay, but obviously the babysitter will take them to court. <laughs> or, or nor will she even ask a child, like, like, in all likelihood. So in order to address all questions, Really what I want, would want everybody to walk out with here today is the knowledge of these three things, which means anytime you have a question in Skirtus Pilem, these are the three questions you have to ask yourself. This is the three points you have to ponder. Number one, what level of commitment is here between me and the person, I'm the employee or the employer? What is the level of commitment? Meaning, did we just talk? Is it just diburim? Did we just discuss it? Did we make a Kenyan? Did we do something that actually constitutes a halachic obligation, a Kenyan? A form, there are many different forms of Kenyan, and many forms of Kenyan that we may not be aware are even Kenyan. And uh, is there even a form of a Kenyan which simply involves the fact that the other person is going to sustain damages by you backing out? So the first question is, is what level of commitment is currently in existence? That's the first question always you have to ask yourself when you have a question like this. Number two, you have to also then figure out what is the nature of employment. There are halakhically three, probably more, but essentially we're going to be talking about three distinct forms of employment. There is a skuryayim, which would mean your typically, typical hourly worker, secretary, cleaning woman, any, you know, any person who gets paid per hour. Then there's what's known as a kablin. A kablin is someone who's paid by the job. We'll go into this a little bit more in detail, how to define that. So that would be typically most uh, people who work in um, the con contracting business are kablanim, whether electricians, plumbers, etc. Usually they charge for the job. And the last kind of employee is an uman, which means someone who's creating a product 
for you, which would be the photographer I mentioned before, a caterer, or anybody that's creating a product. You're hiring him to create a product which you essentially are not paying for the work. You, really what you're paying for is the product. So there are three kinds of uh, employer-employee relationships. So the second question you have to ask yourself is what kind of relationship am I getting myself into? Am I a stereo? I'm a Kaplan? a day worker, a contracted worker, or an uman, a craftsman. The last question that has to be asked before you make any, any move in changing terms, or in firing, or in quitting, or in backing out, is what are the ramifications of this, um, this employment agreement becoming negated, stopping? What are the ramifications of me making these changes? What are the damages that are going to be incurred by either side? Will it be a davar avid? Will it ruin someone's simcha? Will it ruin someone's business? Will it cause them to be behind on schedule? Very big, it makes a very, very big difference the level of, of uh, effect it will have the, the, the actions that you take. So those are the three questions again. You always have to ask yourself, what's the level of commitment, what kind of employment is it, and what are the ramifications of me backing out? So now we're going to go into each one of them, and we're going to try to discuss different applications of them so we can understand what the questions really are. But if any single time from now on you run into a question or you become aware that maybe you should be asking yourself these questions, you ask yourself one of these three questions, and if you don't know the answer to any of them, then you know you need to ask a child. So let's move on to uh, the first step. So what level of commitment is there? So let's begin with deep work. Let's begin with just talking, right? I, I, you, you say, tell someone I'm going to work for you or something along those lines. Now, um, <clears throat> there's a famous saying that uh, a verbal commitment is not worth the paper it's written on. It was said by Yid, actually. That's a very famous saying. Now, in halacha, though, that's not quite the way it works. But what's interesting is that uh, verbal commitments often don't have halachic enforceable, uh, enforceability, meaning you can't take someone to Basin over a verbal commitment. However, what verbal commitments are, are a ben adam l'makim, it's something between a person and Hashem, and obviously ben adam but it's something that is our, our own personal obligation. The, there's a Mishnah in Bab that says that if a Balabais hired Pailami hired people to do work for him and then he fired, he tells them, forget it, um, we're not going to do it, so they can have Taromas. They can have Tarumas. Tarumas are complaints. That's what the Mishnah says is the extent of the commitment of a verbal commitment. The Balabai is the person who the employer said, I want you to work for me, it was just a verbal commitment. Then he backed out on them, they can have terms. They can, they can have complaints, they can have issues with him. Uh, interestingly, Yerub Yisrael Salantra said that you do see from here that you can't just have complaints against people for no reason. You need a Mishnah to give you the right uh, to have an issue with a person, to have complaints against them, to be angry against them. But that, that is what the Mishnah says. You can have terrains. Now, terrains is understood by halacha one second. Terrains is understood according to halacha that the person being that they can have uh, complaints against you, therefore you need to do something to appease them. Like any time you've caused the person to be angry with you and that person is right for being angry with you, so Ben Adam Lachavere requires you to do something about it. So you may need to ask them for mechila, perhaps 
the Rashbil says that you should even offer to pay them something, make some kind of char with them to make up with them. So it's an important thing that even on the very base level, because this we'll see in a moment, is the very lowest level of, of uh, verbal commitment, where the only thing that really it obligates you in is the fact that the person can have issues with you. Still, it does require us to do something about it. We are, it's not okay to leave someone with complaints against you when they are in the right. And perhaps someone would tell you from a Ruchmiyastiga uh, perspective or Ashkafi perspective that that has the potential to cause problems in Shemaim. I, I don't know if it does or if it doesn't, but it certainly doesn't weigh in our favor. So it's always important to do something about it. So if a person does have that right to have a complaint against you. Now, what entitles a person to have a complaint against you? If the reason, once you made a verbal commitment and by backing out, you're causing the person either loss of some sort or you're causing them discomfort. Meaning, let's say you uh, offered someone a job and he didn't give up any other job as a result. Another job, he didn't have any other job offers, but he, now that he had this job, he was very excited about it, um, and he stopped looking for other jobs. But he can't really point to any other job he could have done, but he stopped looking for a job. And now, by you telling him, forget it, we're not going through with it, now they has to start the job search over again, and it may take a couple of days before he gets a job. So that is something that entitles a person to tarimus, entitles a person to, uh, to have a complaint. If the person then goes and finds a job, the next day, right away, in a short enough amount of time that it's considered to be a negligible amount of time, then he is not entitled to have taritis because you caused him absolutely no loss. You offered him a job, you backed out, and he got a different job right away. So this concept of taritis is very much dependent on how much it affects the person. If the new job that he got is significantly worse, it's much, more, much less comfort involved, more commuting, etc., anything that is significantly different, then he still could have taritis. Now, what's also important to realize about this is, and this is really, I think, going to be the moral of this part of the shir, is that we need to take our verbal commitment seriously. That's, that's really what's important. And if we are not ready to commit, meaning to say, if we're offering someone a job and we're not sure 100% that we have that job for the person, then don't offer it. Don't make that verbal commitment. A verbal commitment is a real thing. That's, that's a very important thing to walk away with, maybe more than anything else. And it's something we can teach our children from a very young age. Don't say you're going to do something unless you're 100% sure you're going to do it. Anytime you say you're going to do something, the tire then kicks in and will obligate you to do it. And we'll see in various levels even more, uh, more seriously than what we're even talking about. There are many levels of verbal obligations. So I would think that's the first thing to realize is that we shouldn't make offers, we shouldn't make guarantees, we shouldn't make, uh, give thing, tell people we're going to do things unless we are actually ready to follow through and we're convinced and confident that we can follow through. Obviously, I'm not addressing if an INS happens, if something significant changes, you had a job and then somebody else canceled on you. You know, those are all really a whole different topic, INS. Not talking about that. We're not going to talk about when there are situations, circumstances which are out of your control. We're going to be discussing today things that are totally in your control. You could very much give the person a job, you've changed your mind. <clears throat> now, the next step of this, though, is that there are times when your commitment to give someone a job or to do a job actually requires, obligates you a lot more. There's a whole sugya about Metziah, Dachmem Tess, 
It's called Hin Tzedek. We learn out of a Pasuk, Hin Tzedek She, Hin Shalchat Tzedek, and Lav Shalchat Tzedek. Your yes should be true, and your no should be true. The Gemara is talking about uh, someone that is committed to sell something for a certain price, or committed to buy something for a certain price, uh, or it's relevant to a job as well. You're committed to give someone a job or, you, or, or not. So the Gemara says that if you back out and you renege on your word, you're over an actual isser. This is an aver. Hintzedek is not just a concept of a person having complaints. You're over an aver. It's an aver in the Torah. Hintzel chotzedek, chotzedek. If you say yes, you say no, you have to keep to it. And the Paiskim on Shulchan Aruch, they say, hey, when is it that a person can have complaints? And when is it that it's a Hinshul Chatzedek? Because Hinshul Chatzedek is a very serious issue in Simon Reish Dalad, where it talks about the concept of you saying yes, you have to hold your word. It says that if you don't, you can be called a Russia. And what it means, which could be called a Russia, what it says, in, not making this up, it says in the Sma, other, other Paiskim, is that you can get up by the bima in shul, and it sounds like you could, you should get up by the bima in shul, give a clap, and say that that guy is a rasha. He backed out on his word. My, uh, <clears throat> my, my father, Zechariah Nelbracha, was a Talmud of Rav Mechal Bar Weismandl, Zatzal. Mechal Bar Weismandl is well known for his efforts during the war, and uh, he started yeshiva afterwards, which my father attended. And uh, Mechal Bar Weismandl, right after the war, during the war years, ended up on Sukkot in Yemen. Um, and he was there, it was right before Yantar, was a, right after Yom Kippur, a few days before Sukkot, and he asked, where do you buy an Esrik? So they looked at him, they said, Esrik, oh, there's plenty of time, don't worry about it. And, okay, wait, it's another day, it's two days before Sukkot, a day before Sukkot, no Esrikim to be found. And I mean, Yemen, is, they grow Esrikim in Yemen. So he like, couldn't understand, it was just a zilzil for mitzvahs, like they don't care about mitzvahs, they're not careful about it, they, they don't think it's necessary to like, get yourself prepared for a yantiv, what's going on here? Arab yantiv in shul after shakras, they give a clap, a guy comes in with a box of and pours it out, and everybody goes and selects themselves in Esri. So he was very unimpressed, he just said, what kind of kahila is this? That they, uh, a few minutes before yantiv, they pick themselves in Esri. It comes the first night of yantiv, someone gets up to daven for the amud, and a person ran up, thank you, a person ran up to the, to, the, to the Rav and said, hey, we can't allow this person to dab for the Amid. This person lied. And the Rav said, is that true? And then three other people could say, yeah, he said something, he didn't do it. He lied. So I said, okay, you can't dab for the Amid. They didn't give him Aliyah either. So that, at that point, he relented, Rabbi Chavar, and he said, you know what? They do have their priorities straight. So it's an important thing to recognize how much of a weight the Torah puts on keeping our word. So the Paiskim asks, so then, if there is such a concept that if you say you're going to do something and you back out your Iber and Abeira, you could be called a Rasha, so then why over here is it only complaints? So the, the Paiskim answer that you are only obligated to keep your word only provided that the situation didn't change. But if the situation changed, then that halacha of Hin Tzedek doesn't obligate you anymore. For example, when you offer to sell something, Right? So you say, okay, I'll sell this to you. It could be property, it could be a car, it could be anything. I'm selling this to you, and you make up a price, this is how much I'll sell it to you. And then, prices change from the time that you made that up until you actually go through. It takes three months until the guy got a mortgage and whatever. And then, the houses went up. They went up significantly, $10,000 difference. 
That is not a problem of Hin Sedek to back out. Being, that's called tretari. The sharp price has changed. The, 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 the situation changed. Once it changes that significantly, you are allowed to back out from a verbal commitment. But a person can still have complaints against you for causing him difficulty. And you do need to do something to take care of those complaints. Now, let me tell you, Shaila, I was just asked about a person who was looking for a contractor to do significant work on his house. And as the nature of this thing, you try, you try to price it out. So he got two contractors, which were suggested to him, and he had them come look at the job. And they both quoted him a price, let's say it was $50,000. One said $50,000, one said $52,000. And one of them he liked better, and he sat down with him, and he spent a lot of time with him. They went through the whole house, they went through all the plans, they went through everything they are going to do. And they did everything except for write a contract. They didn't actually write a contract, but everybody was under the understanding that they're going to go through with it. Then someone else told him, you know, maybe you should speak to this other guy. I think he'll give you a much better price. He speaks to the other guy, and the other guy offers to do the job for ten dollars or $15,000 less. Very significant difference in price. Very significant difference in price. So I did warn him that often that that does mean something. <laughs> that, that may mean it'll cost you ten dollars or $15,000 the difference in price, but he did his research and this guy has done work in many people's uh, houses, done great work, people are very happy with him, ten, fifteen thousand dollars And now he wants to know, am I allowed to back out from basic commitment I made with this guy, he spent so much time with me. <clears throat> so I was thinking that, well, this looks like this would be tretari, this would be a significant change in price, so Hinsetic doesn't obligate you. Since Hin Sedek doesn't obligate you, it's just a remise, his complaints, especially he gave you so much time. So I told him, offer to pay him for his time. I don't know, he spent five hours with you, make up some kind of amount, you'll pay him, you pay him $500. I said, I doubt he'll take the money, that's not very good for business, it won't look good about him, but make the offer, and this way you can hopefully appease him. But it's actually not that simple, it's not that simple, even though Allah I do hold, he was allowed to back out. But it's not that simple, and I'll tell you why. And this is also very important. It's extraordinarily important in the market today, in the housing market. It's not cool that the price changed simply because you didn't do adequate research. Price changes with the Gemara, or these price Gemara talking about, it means there was a change in pricing. The, the housing market changed. Houses, all houses went up in price. Labor went down. Uh, there, there was a change, a change in inflation. That's a change. Here is no change. That guy was available all the time. There was nothing that changed about it. He just didn't do adequate research. Same question I was discussing and I was dealt with. You know, the housing market in Lakewood is crazy. I mean, most places it's crazy, but it's especially crazy in Lakewood, different level of crazy. And uh, a person was going to sell his house for, for his asking price was $800,000. That was his asking price. And he got the asking price within the day. So I said, okay, you know, I'll sell it to you. Okay, you're, you're offering my asking price. A week later, someone offers him $100,000 more than his asking price. And another, a week later, a guy asks him, offers him $150,000 more than his asking price. So he says, okay, all I did was a verbal commitment. I can back out. I said, no, it's not, it's not a, no, no price has changed. You just were a little bit too quick. You didn't realize that there is, um, there, there's better offers out there. So it's not so simple that you can always apply this concept of trade tariff, but you do need to be able to apply this concept. That's what's important to realize. That, in other words, if you give your word and you say you're going to hire someone or you say you're going to work for someone or you say you're going to sell something to someone, etc., any kind of verbal commitment you made, and it, was a, it has to be that it was a serious verbal commitment, 
And that's why, you know, just because you discuss something with someone, it's not a verbal commitment. Just because, the, you know, if you tell someone by a simcha and passing, okay, I'll do it for you, it wasn't assumed to be serious. No, I'm talking about a real, it was serious. You talked about it. Your boss asked you, are you going to work here next year? You said, yes, I'm going to work here next year. Real verbal commitment, the real thing. If you make a real verbal commitment, it is very not simple to back out from that. And that, we have to tell that, like I said, to our children as well. They say they're going to babysit, they say they're going to do something. If you volunteer, that is a verbal commitment to do a job for free, but it's a verbal commitment. And you can't back out with it, of it without running into serious issues of perhaps an iser, of hinsedek, and labsedek, and at the very least, taroimus. And it's also, these issues not only apply to actually backing out and, or firing someone, but it applies to changing terms as well. Someone hired a tutor for his kid. Their Rebbe is going to tutor his kid. And originally they made up $60 an hour. Fine. And he finds out that most Rebbeim in town are charging $50 an hour. So he calls back the person and he says, I think $60 is too much. $50 an hour, that's what I'm ready to pay you. So the Rebbe, he can't afford to lose this job, especially not at this point, so what is he supposed to do? He says, okay, what should I do? Fine, you know, I agree. And the, both people might walk away thinking they're very justified. Uh, the person who, the employer said, look, the guy, he was, you know, he was, shouldn't have taken $60 from me if everybody else is charging 50 and I'm right, he's going to overcharge me or stealing from me. And the Rebbe is saying, what kind of nerve is this? You know, like last minute, he's switching on me. And halakhically, the Rebbe is right. The person made a verbal commitment. He just didn't do his research. And now he's changing terms. That's backing out. Ch changing terms is just as much backing out as firing or as quitting. So any terms that have been agreed upon, whether it's price, whether it's length of time of work, whether it's any, anything, vacation days, all terms are once you make a commitment, and certainly once we start getting to the next step, we talk about pinyonim, like the things that are enforceable, if you make a commitment, if you made a real verbal commitment, be ready to stand by it. And I hope that this will encourage people to both take their verbal commitments seriously and to do research before they make their verbal commitments, realizing that it's a big deal. Go ahead. What about verbal commitments in point terms and then the terms change? In other words, globally, we no longer pay X number of vacation days, whatever changes. <coughs> So, you're asking the question is that if there has been an agreement and then things changed in the world, or, or, or laws changed, or, so that would be like a... Uh, so, um, so that would be a trade tariff, uh, that would be a change. That would be a, 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 uh, as significant a change as a change in price. Yeah, it's not the only thing that changes, terms change, norms change, etc. That would constitute trade tariff. So that's a good question. You want to know how Dina Malchusadin applies? Dina Malchusadin definitely does apply. However, what we're talking about is not even Dina at this point, right? We're talking about a person's obligation to be honest between him and Hashem. Dina Malchusadin is not really going to affect that because you know it's not Dina. The Torah also doesn't require you to do it. I can't bring you to Beisdin and force you to do it either. So it's not a Dina thing. It's a it's a, a, a certain. It's just an honesty that a person has to have. And it's just a, a concept that we have to take our word seriously. I guess I'm really asking more in the sense of uh, what's normal business practice. 
you know, there is that will so that would be more a better a better way to call that would be mining medina. That's how that's referred to in halacha. Mining medina is that when there's a certain norm and a certain accepted practice and an understanding, so that would have to be verified. But that's true. In other words, you you would need to verify that that that's the case, and then you would be able to move ahead with that because that everybody had gone into the deal with that kind of understanding. Uh, I'll give you an example of that just in a second. Uh, you know, when you uh, call a taxi. Right? That's a verbal agreement. That's what it is. You call a taxi, you made a verbal agreement that he, you're hiring him for a certain time. No one ever thinks twice about canceling the car service or the taxi, right? You call taxi, like, yeah, I don't need it. So that is admitting Medina. So that's understood. That's part of the business. They want, they know if they don't do that, they make it difficult for you, you're not gonna, you're gonna, won't call a taxi, you know, except before a minute before, if you're 100% sure. So there are certain situations in certain industries that's certainly true, that that's a given, that, that you can back out and there's no, nothing, you're not held to it. I'm sorry, go ahead, good question. Oh, okay, one second. Uh, he was asking, are, does this apply to non-Jews? That's an excellent question, actually. Um, I'm usually a little uncomfortable discussing what does or doesn't apply to non-Jews, not because it's an uncomfortable topic, but because it tends to be abused. Uh, honesty and Hashem is a very important topic, and uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Grossman who's here is going to be talking about it later on today. Uh, but actually in this situation, there is a difference, and it's a very logical difference. It does not apply to non-Jews. And the reason why it doesn't apply to non-Jews is because non-Jews have no obligation to do that for us. They're not required, Hin Tzedek and, and Lav Tzedek. They have no obligation of Taraymas. So being that they have no obligation to do that for us, so then we have no obligation to do it for them. So therefore, that's why non, non-Jews are excluded in this particular halach. Yeah. there's been um, various institutions, schools, camps that have written letters to parents saying that uh, price due to inflationary pressures have changed and therefore whatever price we agreed upon at the beginning of the term of the session needs to be adjusted for inflation. Are they permitted to do that? Excellent question. That's exactly what we're talking about, right? So there so with a camp often you've done a lot more than just make a verbal commitment. A camp, I don't know, camps I go to, they make you sign an awful lot of things. Right before uh, my daughter or son is accepted in camp. So you most likely have already entered into a contractual agreement with them, which is a lot more serious. That's much more complicated for them to back out. So we'll get to that. Uh, But even if it would just be a verbal commitment, yes. But inflation would be traitari. Inflation would be an example of when the price has changed and therefore the work situation changed. And that would entitle them to back out. You could have complaints. They might not care that you have complaints, but that would be the that would be uh, that would be an application. Let's move on. Let's start talking about kinyana. So, what is a kinyan? A kinyan is when you've done something which now can be enforced, at least in a basin, probably in a court. That this agreement, this contract, this this work uh, engagement that we have is something that now is more than just words. It's something. Uh, it's something solid. It's something halakhically enforceable. So the most basic and the most common form of kinyanam that we do would be a contract. So it, obviously, if you write a, a straightforward contract, which is a, you know, a boilerplate contract, I'm agreeing to do this and that, and it spells out the terms and everything is great, wonderful. Everybody should do that if you can. Always make contracts, write everything out. It'll save you a lot of agbis nefesh, a lot of halachic shahs, and a lot of problems. Whenever you can, whenever it's possible, write a contract. 
I remember a friend of mine, when he was in, um, he was in Israel, so he was renting a dealer from another younger man, a person who learned in Kyle for a very, very long time, and that person was a, not a and it wasn't, I don't think it was a Zach, so it wasn't a grandson of the Chafetz Chaim, it was a grandnephew, some, some relation to the Chafetz Chaim. So anyway, they wrote up the Chazet, you know, the lease agreement with his, with his landlord. So generally, I mean, when I was in Eretz Yisrael, you go down to some, one of the little stores that sells pens and papers, and they have these lease agreements, and they give it to you, boilerplate. This person had his own lease agreement, and he spelled out everything, mamish everything, from, from soup to nuts, like anything that could possibly happen, and uh, any, any, anything that could come up was all spelled out in the lease agreement. And my friend said, you know, we're both Bnei Torah, we're both learning Yeshiva, why is this necessary? We'll figure something out. And he said, this is the Messiah we have from the Chafetz Chaim. Everything has to be spelled out, Rachel, Bidcha, Haktana, as if you're dealing with Laban in order, if you want to invo- avoid issues with Yidin in the in moving forest. It's, it's, that's a very, very important piece of advice. Now, the thing with a contract is, and this is really, uh, this goes beyond the halachas of Skiris Pa'ilim, it goes into contract law and Shtaris, but it's a little bit unclear sometimes whether certain things constitute a, con- a contract. Like, we are talking about for a camp or for a school, so you fill out a form. Uh, you fill out registration. So a lot of times the registration is very clear. It's a contract. You say, you know, I'm registering and I'm obligating myself to pay for 12 months, etc. That's if the school has it worked out. So they have it in there. But a lot of times, I just had a Shiloh, someone asked me, uh, his daughter was making a backyard camp, right? So she's making a backyard camp. She's 13. She has five kids. It was worth it for her to do. And she just had everybody fill out a registration, right? It didn't have a halachic status of a contract. It didn't really spell out. The, all it said was, you know, give me your kid's name, their age, when their birthday is, um, some, what, what the instructions are. And she wrote in, the, in that, that form, that registration form, what the hours of camp and what the rules are. And that's what people did. And then the day the camp was supposed to start, three people backed out and it made the whole thing not worth it. So she and he asked me, uh, are they allowed to back out? So we discussed the verbal commitment issue, which is serious, and then the, this causing damage, which is also serious. But I wasn't, what I wasn't 100% sure was it could be this is really enforceable and based in because that might have been a real halachic contract. Uh, it could be that in a babysitting sense or in a camp, backyard camp sense, that is the contract. The registration form is basically the, understood to be a contract. I wasn't sure about that. So a lot of times there are certain kinds of memorandums and understandings that people write between them and their potential employee, employees, and it's not 100% clear whether those will be considered a contract or not. Now, the next common form of Kenyan is a down payment. A down payment would be uh, Kenyan Kesef. There is some halakh discussion about how we look at a down payment, but assuming that a down payment is, uh, you give money, and giving money is Kenyan Kesef, and a Kenyan Kesef works when it comes to Skiras Pailam, when it comes to hiring people, that obligates them. Uh, an interesting thing I do, I do want to point out is that uh, this is actually a place where halakha and secular law do differ that according to secular law, you don't forfeit your down payment when you, when you uh, back out unless the down payment was uh, meant for the agreement itself. I mean, it's like this. Uh, if, let's say, you hire a photographer and the photographer requires you to give a down payment and the way it says in the contract is the down payment is the beginning payment of, for the future job. So he's going to take photos by your bar mitzvah and 
this money will go towards the total amount. So it's, it's, it's payment for the job he's going to do. Now, in the end, he doesn't do the job. So you back out or he back, you back out, right? And now he wants you to forfeit your down payment. According to law, you do not lose your down payment because the money was given for future work, which never happened. He has no right to keep it. According to halacha, it's not pashat. You can keep a down payment either. According to halacha, it's something which is an asmachta. So if you do want to make, uh, set up a... a um, a work agreement, a contract with a down payment, just a word of advice, first write it that it's legally binding and also speak to a rav to make sure it's halakhically binding. It needs to be done correctly for it to actually work. But in any case, it's a kinyin kasef. Once money is given, once it changes hands, that's also fully obligatory and then you can force that person to work um, and, and they neither side can back out. Another possible form of kinyin would also be haschalas malacha. This is a very unique form of Kenyan. This is only applicable to scheres pilem for, for a work situations, and that is once work has begun. Once work has begun, then as both sides that become obligated, it's as if you made a Kenyan, it's as if you made a contract, and neither side can back out, barring different situations, which we'll talk about, but simply, neither side can back out. That's a Kenyan. Haschalas malacha is a full-blown Kenyan. And haschalas malacha starting work, can take a number of forms. Simply showing up is not called starting work. That we do see in the Gemara. So just driving there, showing up that day, even though the person showed up, that doesn't, that's not considered a, uh, a Kenyan, so you'd be able to back out. Obviously, you'd have to deal with other issues, of Hinzetic, etc. But there wouldn't be, you couldn't force you to pay because of the, the, because of the, the halacha of, of a Kenyan, because you'd have become obligated. But anything else, preparatory work, a painter comes and sets up his tools and he starts to put down paper, that's all haschalas malacha. Once he starts doing preparatory work, any preparatory work already is considered haschalas malacha and it constitutes a Kenyan. So these are all important to realize that when you are discussing a, a uh, an employment issue between you and someone else, your kids are doing it, your kids got a job, lawn mowing, whatever it is, no matter how small or how big the job, whether it's for free, you're volunteering, whether it's, it's something you're getting paid for, or you're a huge corporation with millions of dollars of revenue, you always have to ask yourself this question, what is the level of commitment? Is it just a verbal commitment, or is there a Kenyan? Has a Kenyan already happened? And we've just discussed many different ways that a Kenyan might have already happened. Now, the last thing that is somewhat relevant here, but it's really more part of the third question, is what are the ramifications? But it's something you always have to take into account because it's, it's also relevant even when you just make diburim, even when you just made a verbal commitment, is what, will, what kind of damage are you causing that other person? Let me give you an example. Uh, if someone was working, he had a job, and he was getting paid, $80,000 a year, nice job. He was an accountant at a firm. They were offering him that. They, they were offering him that for the next year. He was set to continue on $80,000 a year. His name is Chaim. Ruben approaches Chaim. Ruben says, you know, Chaim, I need an accountant. And I'll pay you $100,000 a year. You have the job by me. And uh, Chaim says, wow, that's great. I'd love to work by you. And I like, you know, I like your company. And I think it's a great job. $100,000. They say, okay, fine. They don't write up any contract. Uh, he guarantees him, I'm going to give you the job. And so Chaim, feeling the necessity to be honest and to be straight up with his former employer, wants to give him enough due notice so that he can get someone to replace him. So he tells him, I'm quitting. And he quits, and uh, they find, you know, they're fine with that, and they find someone else. 
And then Ruben says, oh, you know, sorry, Chaim, it fell through. I'm sorry, I can't give you the job. I thought I'd be able to. And uh, really, my nephew needs a job, or whatever his reason might be. It doesn't make a difference. But I, you know, I, uh, I don't have a job for you. So now Ruben has caused Chaim damage. He hasn't just simply made a verbal commitment and backed out, which would be one issue of verbal commitments, but it's a much more serious issue. He caused them significant job damage. Chaim is now out of a job. And what Chaim did was understandable and was justified. It was understood that that's what he was going to do. It was what he was obligated to do, to, allow, to let his employer know that he's quitting, and which he did. So there it would be very likely that the Ruvain who made this offer to him would be obligated to pay him until he finds a job. He has to pay him his salary until he finds a job. Now, how much money does he have to pay him if he's not working? Uh, that is a, that's a complicated halakhic discussion. We have to get into that. That would obviously have to be figured out with a basin or with a rub. But it's important to realize that that is something we're held responsible for. That is called, the question is, what exactly is, is the chiyuv? This is a little bit more academic. Uh, it might be garmi, which is a form of hezek. You've damaged people. It might be davra avid, which is uh, more of a... Uh, an obligation of arvus, like I kind of made a guarantee, I have to keep to my guarantee. What exactly the lamdus is, is, is like I said, academic, but the halacha is very clear. You are, re- you are responsible for that. So that is another thing to take into mind, that even verbal obligations, if they cause people damage, that itself makes a very, very serious level of obligation. And in addition, in addition, um, the other way as well, which means that if someone makes a verbal obligation and the thing they're committing to uh, is very reliant on their work. For example, you are making a bar mitzvah and you hired a caterer, so you need that caterer there for the bar mitzvah to happen. And for whatever reason, you did not make a contract and all you had was a verbal commitment, which often happens between friends, which often is the reason that they stop being friends. <laughs> so it's something to keep in mind. The, the, what will happen then is that with the caterer last minute, and the last minute can mean a month before the bar mitzvah, right? Whatever it is that once the caterer backs out and he says, you know what, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I thought I was going to do the job for you, I realized I double booked, whatever excuse he gives you why he's backing out, now you're left high and dry. You don't have a caterer for your bar mitzvah. So it's not a loss per se of money, but it's a loss of, of quality. Your loss of your whole event is going to be ruined. That's also a Dabr Ha'aveh, and he cannot back out, even though all he did was a verbal commitment. So there are times that your verbal commitment, when the ramifications are serious, which is the third question you need to ask yourself, when the ramifications are serious, it doesn't make a difference that it's a verbal commitment. If your verbal commitment caused damage, if your verbal commitment is going to ruin someone's simcha, ruin someone's event, that can obligate you equally as much. It most certainly is. Yeah, it most certainly is. And not only that, but there are forms of electronic communication today that is accepted as even a Kenyan. Uh, that would be halakhically known as a setumsa. Uh, setumsa means an agreed upon Kenyan, which means the Torah doesn't call this a Kenyan, the Torah doesn't say this is a real halakhic Kenyan, but uh, it's become the accepted practice. You know, the famous example everybody gives is in 47th Street when they make finish a diamond deal, they say Chaim uh, Bracha or they should make a handshake, something along those lines. Uh, but there are many forms of setumsa, and electronic agreements are often considered to be that. So it's important to realize that a lot of times electronic agreements can be quite, uh, uh, quite obligating. On, on, cater, on catering, uh, yes. 
It's an excellent question. You're asking, so if the caterer backs out on you and you tell him he can't back out and he says, make me, what could you do, right? What enforcement is there possible? So it's a little bit beyond the scope of what I was going to speak about today, but just to give you an idea, uh, at times what you could do is you can hire another caterer who may have a very inflated price as a result of you know, being hired right before your simcha, and you can require that first caterer to pay the difference. Uh, that's one possibility. And another possibility is that you can actually trick, this is a very strange halacha, a little unusual, but you can actually trick the, that first caterer into working for you by saying, okay, you know what, I'll pay you double. I'll pay you triple. Just make my permits. And the guy says, okay, for triple, I'll do it. Uh, and then when it comes to actually paying, you only have to pay the, the actual amount. So those are just different methods of forcing someone to do something, but the halakha actually allows you to take certain actions in order to enforce it. Obviously, don't try this at home without speaking to a first, or a couple of rabbis. When, when does Mishapara, what's the difference between Mishapara and the Mishapara? It's great. That's, that's the Gemara's question, actually. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, uh, Mishapara, just for the sake of this shear, to you know, keep it simple, Mishapara essentially is only with uh, once money has already changed hands by a, by a sale, where the halacha is that money itself is not sufficient to complete the sale, but money has changed hands, so then backing out will make this halacha of Mishapara. So it really won't be applicable here. Happens to be sometimes it is, but you know, confused. It's not so relevant for this uh, shear. Go ahead. So that's a great question. A letter, of, a letter of intent or a meeting of the minds or any of those kind of uh, memorandum of understandings is a very good question. I don't know whether those are considered contracts or not, or not, like I was mentioning before. It would very much depend on the nature of the industry. If that's the kind of contract people write and that's all that's written, then that very much may be you know, sufficient for a contract. I'm sorry? Right. Right. Unless it's written by someone unexperienced, then it doesn't. <laughs> Which is the cases that I get asked about. But yes, you are right. Sometimes it actually is worth the money that you pay a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Right. That would also be a hint, Sedek, and it would very likely cause, right, it, it is possible. Does Allah consider that the hint? That's really a question. Yes, That's, that is a good question, like I said. It's going to be very much case dependent. Each specific case would have to be have figured out by a rough based on what the standard, what's the typical understanding, what's the Menig Medina, what's the exact language used, you'd be surprised. Again, if you don't have someone professional writing it for you, it will very often not say the right things. You know, there are very different, you can phrase something, a slight change in phrasing will, both, will invalidate it halakhically and certainly legally, almost always legally, but halakhically very often, if you phrase something in a future tense instead of in a present tense, it becomes a Kenyan etain, and then you're not obligated. I'm just giving you an example. The, the, the phraseology makes a very, very big difference in the, in the level of commitment. Let's, uh, let's just spend a minute. We're almost out of time over here. So I just want to spend a little bit of time understanding the kind of person you're hiring. This is the last, uh, the last point that we didn't touch on yet. Again, you have to know what is the nature of the employee 
that you have that you're hiring. We mentioned the question in the beginning of a babysitter, a playgroup mora, who decided that she forgot to make this clear in the beginning of the year, but she wanted to change the terms and she wanted to drop off on Friday, I'm sorry, pick up on Friday to be at one o'clock and not at two o'clock. So that's a chazar, right? So she's backing out. In the beginning of the year, she entered into an agreement with all the people and everybody had the same understanding. She made a mistake, but she didn't clarify and they were understanding it was continuing with the same terms as the previous year. They thought pickup was at two. So she is an interesting kind of worker because a playgroup worker is what we would term a schiriyai. She's an hourly worker. Now, even though you pay a monthly price, but the monthly price is calculated by her, based on the hours that she works. And the big, more important point, really, is that she has to be there for a certain amount of time. That's really what her job is. Uh, I've discussed with playgroup workers who feel that the service that they're providing is so important, that you know, they're teaching, and etc. This was very relevant during COVID, when they were, you know, all that COVID shyness about paying those playgroups, when they were doing over Zoom. Um, but what I came to understand, what almost everybody agreed, is that that's really not what you're paying for. <laughs> you're paying for the babysitting. And whatever the kid does, you're kind of happy as long as it's nothing terrible. As long as he's taken care of or she's taken care of, you're fine. So it's a babysitting job. Essentially, it's a, it's a you know, a, a, a buffed up babysitting job, but that's what it is. So you're paying for hours, and you're paying for this many hours, and a person's working for certain, a certain amount of hours. That's called a schiriyayim. A schiriyayim has a very interesting halacha. In halacha, a schiriyayim has the right to back out after they've started to work. Askeriyayim has rishus to back out. The reason is interesting. The reason is, is because there's a pasuk in the Torah, Yisrael you can only be an Eved to Hashem. You can't be an Eved to anybody else. And signing over your time is a form of avodos. It's a form of slavery. Meaning that if I've given my time to you, I said I'm going to work for you this hour from 5 to 6 o'clock in the afternoon on this day, that's the amount of time I'm going to work and I have to show up at 5 and work for an hour, I've signed away my time for you. If I've signed my time away from you, it's an avodos. It's not uh, every Kanani. You're not uh, bound forever. But it's avodos. Avodos cannot be obligatory according to Tari. You can always back out. Who? The worker can always back out. Not the employer. The employer doesn't have that dispensation. The employee can back out. So this playgroup mora is an employee. We're hiring her to watch our children. We, have, we require her to be there from this time to that time. She is a schiriyayim. She's paid per hour by the hour, even though she, how she decides to get, you should pay her the money is, is, is irrelevant. It's what she's, you're paying for, and there's a specific time. So she actually is permitted to back out. She can change terms. She's a schiriyayim. The... A kablin, though, is someone that has no specific times that he has to do the job. He just has to have, he just has to have the job finished. So typically, when you hire a plumber, the plumber says, I'll try to come this time, I'll come that time. It's not really important. You, know, you want him to come at a certain time, but he won't necessarily show up. And he doesn't calculate the price based on the amount of hours it takes, because he almost always gives you the price in advance. He says, oh, this is the problem you have. This is how much it's going to cost. Sometimes, if it takes very long, it might add to it. But essentially, the cost is, the, the, the kind of job it is, is known as kablonus. Kablonus is a contracting, it's a contracted worker, not an hourly worker. Those do not have this dispensation. They cannot back out. They are fully obligated, just as the employer, employee, both are fully obligated. And if any kinyan was made, or if this is called malacha, or terms were reached, etc., no backing out is allowed. And if anybody does back out, they can be brought to basin and that can be enforced. 
So that's that's a very wonderful topic for a shear. That would be it's a, it's a, no. I mean that's that's a different sugi. It's a sugi about talon or whether you know what how how you are obligated to pay and what how quickly. Um, but yes, it is beyond uh, the scope of this topic. So I'm going to I think we're at the end of our time. So I'm just going to summarize what we've done here so far. So we basically touched on all the questions that we're supposed to ask ourselves. So again, the message is is that. We should take our commitment seriously, we should take our verbal commitment seriously, we should teach our children to take their verbal commitment seriously. And the first question we always have to ask ourselves is what level of commitment have I committed to? Was it just verbal? Uh, am I causing damage to the other person? Are they seriously relying on me? And if I tell them, you know, no, then it's going to ruin their event. What is the level of my commitment? Is, has something changed that allows me to back out? Does an illness happen? All those things have to be taken into consideration. But question number one is, what's the level of commitment? Is it verbal? Is it a Kenyan? The Kenyan can take many forms and shapes. It can be a contract. It can be Kenyan Kesef, money changed hands. It can be a, something which is just in the industry accepted as a, as a commitment, like an electronic uh, you know, email might be enough in that industry to be considered a, a real, real commitment. And lastly, starting work is automatically a commitment. And then the, last, the next question you need to ask yourself is what kind of job is this? Is this an hourly job so that, the, that allows the person to back out or to change terms? Or is it a contracted job where you're getting paid for the job? The one thing we didn't talk about was the, an uman where you're not even paying for the job, you're paying for the product, like a caterer essentially, you're paying for the product, uh, a, a photographer you're paying for the product, so unfortunately we don't have enough time to get to that, but that has its own halacha, which needs to be discussed. And the last question you need to ask yourself is what is the ramifications of my backing out? Am I causing the person damage? Have I already caused the person damage? And how much are they relying on me? And all those questions are very much going to decide what is the status of this employee-employer obligation. Thank you all very much.